Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome James MacArthur, president and CEO of PepGen. Pleasure to have you on today, James. Thank you, Rahul. Really appreciate the invite. Great. So James, to kick us off, would love to understand what got you interested in biotech initially and the overall arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, I sort of ended up in biotech really by chance. I'm Canadian. I did my doctoral work at McGill University, did a postdoc, first at MIT in Berkeley, and always had figured on going back to McGill to become, take an academic position there. And then purely by chance, someone introduced me to a recruiter who said, would you be interested in doing this new thing called gene therapy? And so it sounded interesting, a nice way to combine my immunology background, my biochemistry, my oncology background. And so went from the academic lab into a company, like I said, purely on a chance introduction. And I must say, I've thoroughly enjoyed the last 30 years, you know, through various companies working on different platform technologies, working in different areas, all of the goal of translating really cool science into something that could help people. Great. And James, if we look back over your career, you've been involved in a number of different companies, have sat on boards. Talk to us a little bit about your experience on the venture capital side and how that influenced your management style and overall approach to company building. I've been fortunate to work with some really great venture firms and some great people at those firms. RA Capital most recently, but before that, New Enterprise Associates and Atlas Ventures and Healthcare Ventures, and have found that each of them is very unique in terms of their culture, in terms of what they look for. But it's given me a perspective in terms of looking at companies and the fundamentals of companies, both in terms of the science and then critically important, the people, and try to build teams that will be successful in working together solving problems and taking cool science and turning into something that creates value for investors by really changing and improving the lives of people living with devastating diseases. Great, James. Thanks. And talk to us a little bit about the progression of your career. So where did you start off and as well as then went on to become CSO, become involved, what that journey looked like for you? I must say that it was very academic early in my career, really following the science, which is why the early days of gene therapy were really interesting for me, focused on AAV immunobiology, focused on what was it that made a good cancer vaccine, working in the early days in CAR-Ts, oncology and oncolytic viruses. And I would say my approach was science, 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 really pursue rigorous science, well-controlled science, and make certain that you could translate it moving forward. And I think as I've progressed in my career, I've really appreciated the ecosystem that is necessary to go and be successful in this business. The ecosystem that goes beyond the science that includes really great investors who share your vision about what you're trying to create and where you're going. 
who have both the depth of experience and depth of capital to be able to stick with you through the ups and through the downs that are part and parcel of this business. And then critically important, finding people who you can count on through those ups and through those downs who bring great scientific, great experiential, great fiduciary, and great character personality features to the job that allow you to weather the storms. And James, to that point, you've been CEO once before. I'd love to ask you how your experience the first time around versus this time around has been different and what you're doing differently this time around versus the first time. The first company, another rare disease company, and I will say much of my career has actually been in the rare disease space, and and we can discuss why that is in a few moments, I suppose. But it was a very focused approach. Literally, we'd identified a pathway that we felt was critically important, that if we modulated that pathway, we could improve and dramatically reduce the number of sickle cell crises that patients experienced. It was a small molecule approach, which we felt had the advantage of potentially allowing us to move into geographies that more complicated methods like gene therapy might not be able to do. And we were very, very through. It was a very small focus company. It ultimately did go public. And I would say the difference between the approach we're taking now versus then is first and foremost, this is a platform technology as opposed to a lone thumbs up, thumbs down, single therapeutic opportunity approach. The second is there, we did not have a great biomarker in which to go and look to see, did we indeed have target engagement early on? Whereas now we do, and we've already been able to demonstrate movement of a precursor of that biomarker in the case of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which we're doing exon skipping. And then one thing which I think is critically important is the read through across so many different model systems, you know, patient cells and mouse models and non-human primates and healthy volunteers. And we just didn't have the ability really to do those sorts of studies and see that read through. And so the data set which we're pulling together is much broader, much deeper, and much more robust in nature. And we believe gives us a greater likelihood of being able to create value for investors, being able to create a drug that will really fundamentally improve the lives of patients living with these diseases. And oftentimes the journey of a CEO can be a lonely one. And I'm curious how, given the inherent risk in everything we do in biotech, how you operate and maintain balance given all of the ups and downs that are just par for the course in drug development. Balance is a challenging thing. So for someone like myself, who feels a great sense of responsibility for outcomes to patients, for my sickle cell company, a young woman handed me her child and who had sickle cell disease and said, what are you going to do for her? And I remember that conversation. I remember talking to a young woman who had lost her husband to the disease already. I spent a lot of time with patients with neuromuscular and neurologic diseases. And many of these folks I've known for years, and I've seen the progression as the disease cheats them of aspects of their lives that you and I take for granted. So I feel a deep sense of responsibility to them. I feel a deep sense of responsibility to my investors. I appreciate the trust that they put in me. And the capital, I spend it in a fashion that is reflective of that trust. And then lastly, and certainly as important, more so in some ways, is the employees. They place their trust in me. And so I feel a deep sense of responsibility to guide them, present a vision about where we're going and do everything I can to allow us to achieve that. 
So that keeping my focus on those larger things, if you will, allows me to not sweat some of the smaller stuff. The trials and tribulations of opening a new space as we've done recently. This will get through as long as we keep our eye on that future. And the tough part is making certain it doesn't because of that sense of responsibility seep into all parts of your life, such that that's all you're thinking about doing and so forth. And I will say for me personally, being able to get outdoors and putting down the devices and just reflecting on where I am is very helpful in sort of rebalancing things. And for me, the ocean is that place and I'm a sailor. And so getting out on the ocean when you're several miles offshore allows you to quiet some of those things. Thanks for sharing what's worked well for you. If I could ask you for some additional advice. So for folks that are listening that have a similar trajectory to you in that they've been heading up R&D orgs or been CSOs, what advice would you provide them to then go to that next level if they're so interested in becoming the leader of the entire company? I think first and foremost is not seek to be the leader of the entire company. I'm always very cautious about when I'm hiring someone that they go and say, oh, I want to be CMO because, you know, that's what I need to be. That's my next thing. And when I was asked, do I want to become CEO of PepGen? I thought long and hard, am I the right guy to do this? Do I have the background given the different types of expertise, but not all the expertise that would be required for this job? And, and I think that's important is that it's not about the job. It's about where we're going. And for me, I reflected for several days before saying, all right, I think with the right people around me, with the right support from our investors, I think I can successfully do this for you. And that's important. I think it really get experience, build a great team around you, be thoughtful. And one thing I always tell folks is I think one of my greatest strengths is an appreciation of my ignorance. Because if you don't appreciate that ignorance, you will make stupid mistakes by not seeking the advice of people who've been there and done that before, who can help guide you through the invariable ravines that you have to go through. Great. So James, now switching gears a bit, you know, we talked a little bit about how most of your experience has been in the rare disease space, and would love to hear your perspective on drug development in the rare disease space. And despite the challenges, what motivates you and your team? And what are some of the factors in drug development in the space that folks might not be aware of? So what initially drew me into the space is the thought that with a better understanding of the underlying genetic etiology of the disease, you know, what's causing the fundamental problems, we'd have a better sense of what to go in and modulate or correct or replace or modify in some fashion. That would hopefully lead us to do smarter drug development. It would hopefully lead us to animal models that are going to be more predictive of successful outcomes and speak to the fundamental biology that would allow us to identify patients who are more likely to respond and see benefit for the risk that you must take during clinical development. And that's what led me into the space. The reason I think I've never left the space, though, is the people, the patients. It's intimate. You get to know people in a way that you don't. I've worked in rheumatoid arthritis and I've worked in HIV and oncology and other areas. But you get to know the patients and their caregivers and their families and the KOLs in a fashion you don't for other disease areas. And for me, like I said, one of the things that's important is that sense of ownership and responsibility for what we are doing and what we are about. And when you've known a young woman who was undiagnosed and then 
was diagnosed and then was using a walker and then was in a wheelchair and now has lost the ability to speak. Or the young person who basically says, the day I can't control my wheelchair, that last day is the day I want my life to end. Or a person says, the day I can't feed myself, that's when life stops having meaning for me. This is like, you become part of their lives. And for every company in this space that I've worked in, I carry with me their stories. And so that's why I've never left the rare disease space is that sense of being part of a community and having that responsibility to the community. And how has that rare disease landscape evolved over the last decade or so? And what are some of the challenges that are involved in running a rare disease company? So I think in the last decade, more and more and more companies have been moving into this space and with a whole variety of therapeutic modalities, including gene therapy, where I think for a lot of patients, they view gene therapy as this is going to cure the disease. I'm going to get one shot or one infusion and basically the disease is over. And I will say as someone who started their career in gene therapy, I appreciate what gene therapy can do and I appreciate what its limitations are. And so I think they're going to be, for certain diseases, gene therapy is not going to be the cure. In some cases, it may help and it may provide a baseline of therapy that could be beneficial. And that in itself would be hugely impactful, but it won't be the cure. And I think managing those expectations is something we as member of the drug development community need to be mindful of. Now, in terms of the challenges with more and more companies moving into the space, particularly for some of the rare diseases, there are fewer patients available for clinical trials. And when we ask a patient and their family to go on a clinical trial, we are asking a tremendous amount of them. And again, I think as our responsibility to the community, we have a responsibility to go and communicate, this is what I think could be the benefit downstream, but I cannot promise you that. And these are what the risks that I know of today. And here's what we're doing to mitigate those risks as best as possible but we cannot remove them from the table. And I think it's that sort of honest conversation, that honest communication that is expected of us. Great. So with that primer on the rare disease space, let's switch gears and talk about PepGen. So talk to us about your approach for the treatment of neuromuscular and neurological diseases and where you are from a development perspective. You know, as I'd mentioned, probably of, of my career, last 25 years, most of it has been in the rare disease space. And a lot of it has been either working with an incubator company, which I had co-founded, or working with venture capital firms to find new, potentially truly impactful therapies for individuals living with rare genetic diseases. And I'd spent a lot of time looking at the neuromuscular disease space, where the possibility of oligonucleotide therapeutics was there. And in some areas, it's been realized. In other areas, it has not been realized. And where it hasn't been realized, particularly in the context of diseases of the muscle, is the inability of naked oligos to get truly meaningful levels of oligo into the cells that matter in the muscle. And so I knew that was a fundamental challenge across the entire space. And I want to say it was summer of 20 when I was contacted by someone from RA Capital who said, oh, you've been in the rare disease space for a while. I'd like you to look at some interesting data from a small company in the UK. And I remember looking at this data and going, that's interesting data. And then they said, well, it's actually, this is not just mouse data. They've now got data in non-human primates. And for those of your listeners who may not know, there've been a lot of therapies that have been developed that have been curative in mice that have failed when we've moved them to humans. And so when you have something that shows 
similar activity or potency as you move from rodents to non-human primates, that gives you real possibility that as you move it forward, you might see similar benefits. So I saw this data and I knew immediately that this could be something that could be transformative. If we could do this across the neuromuscular disease space, we could take a whole range of different diseases and make them treatable. And so that's what got me initially excited. And I started working with the team. And then I was at RA Capital working on a bunch of projects. And they said, you know, we really think this has a possibility of doing some extraordinary things. We need to do more financing. We need to build the company. We'd love to have someone who's been there through that sort of stage of growth of a company to lead it and was asked to join and join the company. And I've not regretted it. I joined back in January of 21 and it's been two plus great years. We've done a whole series of financings. We did an IPO last year. We did our first study in humans, got back positive data from that study. So it's been really an extraordinary rocket ship going from four or five employees to 52 employees today and driving forward a whole range of different neuromuscular disease therapies that we think could really help people. And James, the environment has changed quite a bit since you first started at PepGen. You're obviously well aware of this. I'm curious what your viewpoint is on that correction that's currently underway. And then second part of the question is, how is this then influencing how you're approaching execution against your goals and team building? The advantage of having all this white hair is that I've lived through a variety of corrections and downturns over the years. And I've, I've always found you can guide companies through them if you have a compelling story, a compelling thesis that you are advancing, if the fundamentals are strong. Fundamentals, I mean, are you treating a real problem that exists today that needs a meaningful solution? Have you got a solution? that has proven across every possible way you can test it to be robust in nature against appropriate comparators? And then do you have the team and the plan that actually is going to demonstrate in a reasonable time frame that you can get it to the point where we can go and where people on the outside can go and say, okay, you guys have done it. You have shown indeed that you can solve for this problem. And so that's what we've been able to do here at PepCheck. As I mentioned, a tremendous problem in delivering therapeutic oligonucleotides to muscles to be able to mediate either exon skipping or blocking of targets. We've got a solution that we believe is robust where we've been able to show across many different oligos in mice, in non-human primates. And behind this, we've got multiple exon skipping approaches. We've got other neuromuscular diseases. And now I'm excited to say we're gearing up to move into the neurology space, space I've spent a lot of time looking at. And you know, to that point, let's talk about the neurology space then and your viewpoint on CNS and why that's an area of interest for you and why it's drawing so much investor interest at this point as well. It's a challenging area. The brain is a difficult tissue to get drugs into. It is a very complex organ. The diseases themselves tend to be very complex in nature. But I've had a long-standing interest in that area through my interests in a variety of ataxias, which are movement disorders, including Friedrich ataxia, where I'm part of a group, the Friedrich Ataxia Research Alliance, that is fortunate to have seen its first drug approval recently. A big shout out to the team there that helped do that. But there's so much more to be done for individuals because of the challenges of the CNS. And we believe that there is a path for PEPGEN to be able to contribute 
to that group of individuals with these diseases using the IV delivery of oligonucleotides coupled to what we call our enhanced delivery oligonucleotide technology to go and access the brain and be able to deliver meaningful levels of oligonucleotides to the brain. So we're looking forward early next year to reporting out hopefully our first preclinical data in our first CNS indication. And we've got a great team here that's working on how to take it to that next level and be able to look at more and more neurologic diseases. We really think that with our solution, we could have a meaningful impact for patients with not just neuromuscular disease, but also neurologic diseases and potentially beyond that as well. The expectation will be for us to demonstrate the success across many more diseases and we want to be in a position to do so. Yeah, it's certainly important given this environment to have at least a plan for multiple shots on goal, as you well know. On the point of which indications you pursue first and second, given all that you've seen over your career, would love to unpack your own mental model around which indication do you go with first and why, and then what follows, particularly from a value creation perspective, but at the nexus of value creation and obviously following the science. What I like to do is balance the risk profile in different ways. And what do I mean by that? So in our first indication, we're focused on the DMD, Duchenne muscular dystrophy patients who are amenable to an exon 51 skipping approach. There is an approved therapy in that space today that produces modest levels of dystrophin. And we believe we can produce significantly higher levels of dystrophin. And it's generally thought that if you can get to 10% dystrophin, that that could really move the needle for patients, potentially prevent them from going into wheelchairs, prevent them from succumbing to the disease in their 20s and 30s. And so then the opportunity there to be able to demonstrate the power of the technology, where we know what we need to achieve, where we know where the patients are, where we know what the benchmark, the minimal benchmark is, and what a target benchmark is, is powerful and very important. That's a disease that has something that is good, but we could certainly do better and where there's a lot of competition, but we have a clear idea about where we're going. And across a range of preclinical models, we've been able to demonstrate, we believe, superiority. And now in humans following our healthy volunteer study. So we balance the competition risk and market opportunity risk with the knowns in terms of what we need to do. Our other indication, myotonic dystrophy type 1, is a disease with no approved therapies where we're taking a very novel approach to other approaches that have been attempted, really focusing on liberating the one protein, MBNL1, that MBL1, that is basically caught up in these toxic nuclear foci. And as a result, it is not available to mediate splicing of RNAs. And as a result, there's a broad range of different pathologies associated with this disease. So the complexity there is it's in many ways a more complex disease where we don't have yet the clear benchmarks in terms of what we need to achieve, where we don't know what the approvable endpoints are going to be today, but where we believe we can really fundamentally change that landscape and we will chart that path along with others in the space and with the patient organization. And that's one of the great things about the rare disease space is you've got these terrific patient organizations that become your partners in terms of developing therapy and helping you chart the path for a disease like myotonic dystrophy, where you don't know exactly what it does success need to be. And so that's the balancing of that risk. More patients, more unknowns, fewer patients, but more knowns. 
And then beyond that, we try to look at other diseases. And so we've had another neuromuscular disease that is differentiated from our DMD program. We have a neurology program that's differentiated from both our DMD and our DM1 program. So the key here is be smart and follow the science. Where do we think we can really impact things? It's the old adage. You don't take a hammer to put in a screw. We know what we've got and we apply it to those diseases where we think we can have an impact. But then beyond that, we try and diversify that risk. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing what I'm sure has involves many, many years of you thinking about indication selection to our audience. Switching gears a bit, we're recording this in the early part of 2023, and you started at PepChen in the beginning of the pandemic. Here's what, from your vantage point, what are some of the silver linings of the pandemic in terms of running a company that you hope lasts long after COVID-19 is a thing? It's tough to find anything with the pandemic that I would call a silver lining. But, you know, one thing which we have here is a hybrid work environment where people effectively work from home if they have a non-lab job on Mondays and Fridays. They can come into the office five days a week. I actually like it here. My dog likes it here too. But I think for many people, that flexibility, that hybrid environment is terrific and it works great for them and it works great for the company. So I would say that's probably one of the positives. Coming out of this phase, I think there will be a focusing in the field in terms of capital and people. And and I'm not sure that's necessarily a a direct readout from the COVID years, but perhaps what the effervescence around biology, what biology and biotech can do is perhaps one of those follow-ons from the pandemic. We are now adapting to the world after that from the standpoint of a different environment from financing standpoint and a different environment from an employment standpoint. So I think that's another thing which we're looking at as we come out of that, that is a, a moving target. Okay, great. And James, before we let you run, we'd like to ask you to reflect one last time, given all of your experiences across various different companies and sitting on boards and being on the VC side, if you were to go back to your younger years, what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self, knowing all that you now know? Yeah. And it's funny, as I think back, it was actually a venture capitalist I was working with. And I asked him, what he thought the most important thing was about creating a successful company. And I had expected an answer of, oh, it's about the science or it's about working in this area. It's about the founders. And he said, without hesitation, it's about the people because good people will take good science and turn it into a great company. And bad people will take good science and kill it every time. And that's one thing which and the folks here at PepGen know, I thank my lucky stars often. And I'm surrounded by really extraordinary people. And I look back at my career and the people who shaped my companies, who shaped my thinking, who shaped my science, were extraordinary people who were thoughtful and generous in their time and insightful. And as I think I mentioned to you earlier, one thing I have a deep appreciation for it always is how much I have to learn. And if you have an appreciation of how much you have to learn, you can actually listen to people who have a different or greater experience than you and take those learnings and hopefully make yourself better. So advice to myself, it's not all about the science. It's actually all about the people. Very salient advice, James. And thanks for being generous with your time today with us as well. It was a pleasure having you on and and wishing you and your colleagues continued success as you pursue these very important therapies in the rare disease space. Appreciate it, Rahul. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.